Welcome to episode 13 of the Pirates of the Airways podcast, where we talk to some of the people who helped shape the radio landscape in the UK back in the 1970s and 80s by fracturing the occasional law and becoming land-based radio pirates. This episode, we talk to Philip Bendel, or Philip Day, as some of you may know him. He talks about his time on Radio Jackie and Radio Concord, among others. He shared transmission sites and studios with some of the major characters of the pirate radio scene at the time. So why not sit back and enjoy a little trip back to London in the 1970s? Hello and welcome to another podcast, another Pirates of the Airways podcast. This week, we are going to travel all the way to New Zealand, which is where Philip Bendel now lives, uh, who was involved in pirate radio back in the 70s. Uh, hello, Philip. It's good morning for you. Good evening for me, I think. Yes, it's good morning from here. Good morning. Yep. Now then. I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody at the beginning of these conversations. When did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just listening to the radio? Well, I'm too young to remember the 60s offshore offshore stations. So my first recollections would be around in the early 70s, 71. I think I started by listening to Radio Luxembourg and then I tuned around on the medium wave and found Radio Drackey and then Radio Odyssey. They were the first stations that introduced me to pirate radio. Um, and then through Radio Jackie, I became a, a member of their, their, their club and I started receiving their um, printed uh, A3 newsletter with photos of, of uh, Nick Catford with car batteries and and, uh, and setting up in remote woodlands. And um, and that's how I kind of became hooked on the pirate radio. So you were a listener first, obviously. When did you actually get involved with a, with a station? What was your first station and how did you get involved? How did you contact them? Well, it all came about through, I was a member, a subscribed to SIRA magazine that's the Southern Independent Radio Association based in Horsham. That was Mick, uh, Mick Mayhew, who is also one of the early pioneers because many people used his, uh, his, his address as their, as their mailbox. Um, and I saw an advertisement in there for, to buy for a transmitter. So I sent off my, my 30 pounds and duly um, a 50-watt transmitter arrived. So I kind of um, plugged it in. Got, got it all set up, and at the time, I also had a hobby of collecting tapes of pirate radio and also radio jingles, and I had a collection of jingles for radio personality, and they thought, oh, they, they were quite smooth and professional, so there it was, radio personality, and I came on the air from my bedroom in Hendon in London uh, from 2 o'clock to 2.30 on Sundays, and uh, that's how it all started. Um, yeah, in the, in, 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 in with, with the aerial hanging out of the, of the back window down to the end of the tree at the bottom of the garden. 
and there we were, radio um, personality. And as time, um, days went on, I kept on tuning around, and then I tuned to a station called Radio Concord. And um, they happened to be just down the road from me in Golders Green. So um, I trotted along one Saturday night, and they, and then I was a young guy, 15, and they said, well, you know, if you want to come and join us, please come along. So um, I trotted along there at about midnight and got sent out on lookout duties on the corner of um, Watford Way and, and um, Golders Hill Road, I think it was. And there we were. That was my first introduction. And 40 years later, I'm still in contact with many of my friends from Radio Concord, uh, namely um, Arnold and um, what's he called? Arnold Levine. Uh, then, of course, there's uh, Matt Black, Jeffrey Schwartz. So it was um, yeah, happy days indeed. You've told me you're you're in the book, aren't you? That Arnold wrote about it, banned for the B- banned by the BBC, uh, which, if anybody's listening, is a really great book about pirate radio. Uh, very interesting about that early seventies uh, story of pirate radio. So when was this about? So you were fifteen years old. What, what what year was that roughly that you first got involved with Concord? Mostly nineteen seventy two. About seventy two, around about that that period. Um, and then that's where it all started. And um, as time went on, my group of friends grew and expanded through uh, through Pirate Radio. Um, guys came on board. I mean, one of the notable early contacts I had, I think it was more uh, due to my um, my collection of jingles and exchange of jingles, was, uh, of course, Steve Wright, who... Um, who one of the few guys from that area went on to not only fame but also fortune. But <laughs> the rest of us might have at best gone on to fame, but I don't think anybody else went on to a fortune. And I used to go in the hangout in his bedroom in, in Riley and Essex and record jingles, and he used to record some for me. We swapped tapes, and he became quite a close friend. And I remember his excitement when he got his very first job at the BBC Record Library. And then uh, about a year later, he called me from Reading and he went on the year at Thames Valley Radio. Um, I think, I can't recall the name, but he was quite excited and that was his first radio stint. But then around about that time, we probably time was moving on to about 76, 77, and I sort of drifted away from radio. I found other interests and, and girls and what have you. <laughs> and then I started, I still, I became more of a listener than anything else. But of course, the time with uh, Concord, we, we started off just um, Jeffrey, Arnold, uh, there, was, there was Mick, small group, and I was still the, the youngster that did all the, uh, did the running around and got the man the phone in the, I remember one night I was manning the phone in the phone box on Watford Way, about two in the morning, snowing outside. <laughs> so we had happy days. But then as time went on, other other guys joined in, and and the and the band of uh, the band grew. Um, see people like Keith York came on board. He became a listener. Then he became a close friend, and he was first came to London, based in Notting Hill Gate. And he was a um, working for the GPO as an engineer. I can't recall exactly what he was doing, but uh, 
he became our go-to uh, transmitter fixer man. And uh, he, of course, went on to his, his, his days in um, The Voice of Peace. And I last saw Keith in about 1982 when he was on South Coast Radio in Dublin. Well, if, if uh, people remember, we did a great interview with Steve Marshall, who talks very fondly of Keith and his time on South Coast Radio. Um, and I know they were very good friends because a lot of guys went on to the, the Irish scene, certainly in the 80s, when, when there was the big uh, pirate explosion over there, and especially the, some of the guys from The Voice of Peace. Let's talk about radio personality. I'm very, very interested in this. <laughs> did you actually, did you know if anybody was listening? Did you ever get busted? How long were you actually... How many weeks did you broadcast your exciting half an hour of radio? Well, it started off, of course, with no response. But then I uh, used to use it. My first mailbox was through 91 Park Street. And I started receiving mail. And I knew, yeah, there were listeners. And uh, that's where it all started. Um, I was only on the air for 30 minutes. So um, basically, because I, I, I thought with 30 minutes, there'd be too short a time for the for, for Eric to track me down. So I, was, I thought I was fairly safe, and, and I was. Um, so that's how that's kind of how it started. But I think eventually it asked me to conk out, and uh, <laughs> so I parked that on one side, and then sort of joined in with the crew at Radio Concord. And um, in those days, we were on the air Saturday night from midnight through until about five on a Sunday morning. And uh, all the early broadcasts were from Jeffrey's home in uh, Golders Green. I've got happy memories of us all um, setting up all the gear on his dining room table. And his mum was always in the other room doing ironing. Lovely lady. And making cups of tea. And, of course, mums were also very much the hidden uh, um, people behind all these pirates who was at my home in Servington Road in Hindon. As time went on, we set up the main studio was there and everybody came to my house to record the programs, Keith and uh, everybody else. And mum would always be making the tea and uh, a few times we used my home as, the, uh, as, as, the, as for live broadcasts on bank holidays. And um, we did a few broadcasts from around the Welsh Harp, where everybody would meet at my place. We'd all trundle down down the road with um, carts, with car batteries and transmitters and what have you, and then come back at the end of the day and mum would make the tea. So it was, um, yeah, happy days indeed they were. Um, another, another, another important person I should mention is Chris, Chris Curtin. Chris Curtin, we, I became friendly with him. I think he started as a listener, and I'm still friendly with him too. To, I'm still in contact with him too today. But we, then we used his, his address for mail because he lived in um, Chelsea. So we thought, well, that sounds quite, uh, quite a flash address to give out on air. So we used his address, and he managed the mail for us for a long time. And um, what was the typical sort of broadcast day for you on Concord? Were you actually on the air or was it, were you just very much part of just the, the team there? No, I was really part of the team. I, I wasn't really interested in being on the air. I just, uh, I was there getting part of the team, just the buzz and the excitement of, of climbing trees and, and being on lookout duties and instead of walking around the streets with the radio, listening to the station, and um, just the, the, the buzz and the, uh, the, the, uh, that you get from being part of it, and also the, 
the cat and the mouse game you're playing when you're still always uh, looking on the lookout for the GPO for Eric Gotts. And of course, eventually the time did come when um, we had, well, what happened? I need, I need to go back a bit. Eventually, Con- uh, Concord got bigger and bigger, more and more people joined in. And then we had uh, Don. Don called up and Don Stevens came on board. And then we had um, yeah, uh, two guys joined us from Radio London North, Simon Newbury and Dave Robbie. Dave Robbie is still um, a regular on Radio Caroline. And then when we had this bigger team, then Don Stevens was instrumental in pulling everybody together one day and said, hey, guys, um, let's think big. Instead of being on the air just for five or six hours, what about being on the air for the entire day? So we got together and said, well, let's broadcast 24 hours on Sunday during the night at Radio Concord and in the daylight hours is Dynamite 235. And that's how, that's how it came about. Basically the same, the same crew, same team, just with two totally different formats. Um, and Dynamite 235 led by uh, the likes of Keith uh, Keith York, um, yeah, Dave Robbie. We had, some, we had some good guys on there and included in the recorded shows. I had tapes from um, Steve England. He recorded a show from the MV Janine. Um, so we had we had quite a quite an interesting mix of people and we just got bigger and bigger until we got too big for our boots and the GPO became very... Um, interested in us and eventually our time was up we had a big raid in scratch woods rather than just a normal uh, contingent of gpo turning up this time they surrounded us with police and dogs so um nowhere to run so that's when uh, i had my day in court and duly got um, prosecuted for contravening the wireless telegraphy act of 1947 and I paid my, I think it was £25, I paid my £25 on the same day and said thank you very much and um, went off into the night. So on those days with, with Concord and Dynamite, were they moving around a lot? Were they using the same site a lot or was it moving around every week? Well, Concord was broadcasting from fixed locations such mainly squats. There's a lot in the Melody Maker article and... Uh, and, and lots been documented about the, uh, the broadcast they did from various squats around town, which is quite a different story than in the daytime. We broadcast normally from mobile locations. Popular one was Scratch Woods, um, Totteridge. Where, whereabouts is Scratch Woods? That's near Apex Corner, um, northwest London. Uh, it's nearly just off the motorway. The motorway, I think the M1 now has the first service station in Scratch Woods. So that, that was the, kind of the, the location. Yeah, they call it London Gateway now, not Scratchwood. <laughs> okay, it's, it's moved on. Uh, yeah, well, they just changed the name, I think. I think they wanted to make it sound a little bit more dynamic, but it's still, it's still a service station on the M1. Um, I, the other thing I know about that is I know the HMS Belfast guns point at Scratchwood services or London Gateway services um, so that you've got an idea of how far the guns could fire. So there we go. That's the other thing I know about that particular place. So that's where the, the big raid was. And did they did they get everybody that day or was it just you and a couple of others? No, it was only, only, only a couple of us because at the time I was on duty for changing the, the tapes. 
we had two cassette players and we, we had quite a good setup. We had a little mixer, so we had two cassette players. So one 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 hour show finished, we could we could phrase in the second one. So I was actually sitting right next to the transmitter, um, just changing tapes. So I was caught uh, right uh, right there. And I think a couple of others were caught. Um, I can't recall what happened to uh, exactly who they were, but. Um, at the time, I thought, well, I was caught red-handed, so I couldn't. I had to plead guilty and pay my pay my dues, and uh, so I did. <laughs> okay, and um, you, you carried on again after that with them. You kept with them after that. Um, at the time, I was also helping out with the Accessible Radio Classic, part of the London transmitter of Independent Radio. I used to, I used to go out on location with them on Sunday nights. And other Sunday nights, I'd be the person to stay at home and use my home number for taking the phone calls. So I was with them for quite a while. No broadcasts, but I was um, became quite close to uh, A.B. Nathan, uh, no, A.B. Cohen, Brian Horn, a well-known name. And he used to pick me up and on Sunday nights and we'd go and climb trees in Totter, in Totteridge and, and, and come on the air on a Sunday night. Um that was sort of my last uh, time I recall being involved with pirate radio in the UK. I mean, later on, I ended up living in Belgium and I became involved with a couple of pirate stations in Belgium, whereas Belgium had the same setup as, as Ireland, where the pirates were basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, legal stations operated openly from the studios in the centre of the city. And... Um, and and so forth, and there were twenty four hours a day FM high power, and really what became became quite well known across uh, Brussels and uh, that part of Belgium. So when what uh, what year would this be roughly? That would be eighty two, eighty eighty to eighty two. Capital Radio wished to broadcast from the Martini Centre in Place Roger in uh, in um, Brussels. And one of my colleagues, who was also there at the same time, was Jelle Bronstra. And Jelle has also become quite a name on, as the um, he, he's, he's got the organisation the where he, he he's the, the 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 collaborator and collector of all things radio jingles and recordings and also offshore pirates. So we spent a the time there. And then there was another station in Brussels called Brussels International. Which um, was quite uh, quite a uh, we had a very high powered transmitter. A lot of the backer had had obviously had 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 deep pockets. Every week he flew in the latest um, top forty from from Canada and the US. So it was it was quite a good setup, quite professional. And I used to present the show on there between eleven and one in the morning, and that was Monday to Friday. So that was. Quite a happy, happy times that was. You were involved with, uh, I'll, I'll go back to the earlier days. You were involved with Concord. You did your own thing, Radio Personality, for a little while, and Dynamite, uh, and, and uh, Classical as well. What was your motivation? Why did you do this? What was your reason? Because you weren't on the air. So why were you doing this? Because an awful lot of people I speak to, it's about them wanting to be a, a disc jockey for the want of a better word. And also the, the the sort of the excitement of it and the buzz, I suppose, as well. But certainly for me, it was about being a presenter. As someone who didn't do programmes, what was your motivation? Why did you want to do this? Good question. Well, my 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 passion was collecting radio jingles, 
and and I I I had the job of of compiling the jingles, and then we had quite a number of jingles we used on Radio Concord and Dynamite, which I uh, mixed together and spliced. You know, back in the day when you wanted to splice tapes, you had to get another razor blade, <laughs> and, and it was quite a precise uh, art. So I was thrilled to hear my jingles on the air, and also probably just the, the sheer excitement and the thrill of, 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 of the cat and mouse with the GPO and, 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 uh, and riding around London tuned to the pirate radio. It was just a, just a happy time just hearing that music. I mean, I grew up, I missed the pirate radio, the pirates, offshore pirates, but uh, I was like many people to my age wanting to hear the latest music. And in those days, all you had was a restricted needle time of Radio 1. I grew up with Tony Blackburn and that was it. And, and there was nothing after 5 p.m. except Saturday night, there was a 45-minute R&B, rhythm and blues on, on BBC Radio 1. And, and that was all we had in those days. So I wanted to hear music and, um, and just, just the thrill and the companionship and the friendship and just getting out there and, and, and um, fighting the establishment. I suppose we were all rebellious in our youth. And this was uh, me being rebellious against the authorities and thinking we could get away with it. Talking about the friendship and the colleagues that you had on the stations, you've, you've dropped some pretty big names there. Uh, obviously, Brian Horn is, is one of them. I know that you know of, if you didn't, well, I think you did know Nick Catford. Um, there's also um, Arnold Levine, Keith York, a lot of big names. Who out of all those people that you knew on the stations, who, who was the person who you sort of thought, yeah, he's the guy really, he's, he's, the, he's the number one man, he's, he's the one who's the best example of what we do? I'll probably, uh, above all, will be Keith, Keith York. Keith, Keith York, he, he, he called in as a listener uh, from his little bed set in Notting Hill Gate. And uh, so I said, come over. So he came over to, over to my place and mum made him dinner. And mum said, he looks a bit uh, undernourished. Mum used to cook, regularly cook dinners for him. And uh, we became very close friends. And uh, he, he used to um, use my home as his base. He used to zoom back up home to Yorkshire quite often and he used to leave his bags at my place, go to Yorkshire and come back. And uh, I made a few trips to Yorkshire to uh, Masham, drank some thickst and old peculiar. And of course, so did uh, another guy who came very, very friendly with him, was of course Don, Don Stevens. They became close, close friends. And of course, they, they, they worked together on Voice of Peace. And then, of course, South Coast Radio. Uh, Keith York was, was probably... Um, close friend. And then, of course, Chris Kurt. Chris Curtin, he was the um, in, in Jossie, and he was a person that used to look after a male. He was more of, a, more of an avid listener, but became a close friend, and I'm still in contact with him to uh, this day. Um, and, of course, Don. Don, um, we, we, we became good friends. And the same with Arnold Levine. We're still in close contact. And uh, he used to come round to my home and, um, and, and always with, with his sports car. Mum used to go out and, and, and was quite impressed by his car collection. Uh, so, yeah, probably um, there are some of the names that come to mind. When you were with Concord, were you conscious of the political nature of the station? Was it something you knew about or was it just the fact that it was a radio station and you loved being involved? 
Well, we just had the interesting, we, we were completely different from any other station. We had, we were broadcasting the squats. We had uh, people that were joining the broadcast. It was all very much ad lib. Um, and people just came in off the street and came and went, and we had squatters, and and there's, there were some very interesting characters. There was um, a guy who was on the run from the uh, from uh, the French um, uh, army. He was a deserter, <laughs> and there were some really interesting characters. There was, there was uh, Joe Schummer, of course, who became uh, the Clash. In the early days, uh, we had some interesting characters, and I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, just enjoying the whole thrill of, of, of being out there, being up all night, running around with car batteries and, 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 and looking on lookout. When, of course, we had some interesting times with the Concord Broadcasting the Squats. A few times when the police would get involved because they wondered what we were doing, and we had to come up with a story about why we had wires dangling down and... Um, they generally left us alone, and, uh, and we, we, we also were pretty much left alone by the by the GPO until we just probably got too big for our boots, and they started to uh, raid us nearly every week. And um, Keith, he was the uh, the the person that got, got us through. He'd come to my house with a whole pile of components, and, and somehow he could knock up a, a transmitter in in, in in the day's work. <laughs> and uh, my my bedroom became the transmitter studio, and he knocked it up, and then we got it back on the air again, and um, had to go out and re- and pick up more car batteries and 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 convert it to convert the, the battery to power to run the transmitter. So we, we had some we had a lot of fun. How we did it, I really don't know because uh, we were up all night, all night, all day. Just, just the whole thrill kept us, kept us all going. And did Radio Concord get a good uh, response? Was there a lot of listeners out there? We had, uh, we had mail from from as far as as Sweden and and, and Ireland and Scotland, but we had good coverage. That what really gave Concord a boost was the uh, lot of coverage in the Melody Maker and the Evening Standard. So we became quite well known through uh, the publicity. Melody Maker ran regular columns about Radio Concord, and one day, one one edition had a two-page spread of Radio Concord. So that's how we became um, uh, quite sort of well-known in that area. Quite a lot, lot of good publicity, and uh, the guys like Keith said, "Well, everybody else was running with with a hundred watt transmitter. Why don't we run the kilowatt?" So uh, we we kind of thought big. <laughs> So yeah, you know, we, we we were the first that really got got too big for our boots. Did they actually get to a kilowatt in the end? We had a couple of times with a kilowatt transmitter. One one Christmas broadcast, we had a I think it was we had a kilowatt from Jeffrey's house transmitter was um, we borrowed it from Mark Mark Ellis, I think was his DJ studio name, or was it Stuart Vaughan? Um, Yes, I can't remember the names, but um, we did have a few occasions with quite a high power transmitters and one broadcast from my home in Hindon, a dynamite broadcast. I know um, Keith uh, came along with with, 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 a, with a van with, with quite a big contraption that um, when, we, when we cranked it up, kind of all the, all the power in the street dimmed. Um, so we had some pretty powerful stuff. But I wasn't really um, 
uh, I, I didn't really know much about transmitters apart from how to turn them on and, and modulate and, and just do the basics. But Keith was the man. He was the, the, the authority. And he also was the was a good presenter. So he was one of those rare people that was, was, was a good presenter as well as having the technical skill. So a very, very uh, valuable person, which proved you invaluable in um, when this teaming up with Don Stevens on The Voice of Peace and um, South Coast Radio in, uh, there in Dublin. It must have been an incredibly exciting time. I know Concord is quite a legendary station. Like I said, I've read the book. So I, I sort of know some of the stories anyway. And I will read it now with even more interest knowing that you're actually in it as well. So the last thing you did was classical with the London Independent um, Broadcast Network. What, what happened after that? So why did you decide that's it for me moving on? I know basically my, my, my career took over and, and I think I, I would come to your work for transfer me to Brussels. And in, back in those days, moving from London to Brussels was like going overseas to another world because, you, you know, it was, it was an overnight ferry trip. So I kind of uh, relocated to Belgium and uh, only really went back home about every year. And, and eventually, uh, after three or four years in Belgium, carried on and went from Belgium to Australia and Thailand. And uh, well, more recently, I spent a lot of my career working in hospitality in, based in Jakarta and Bali. Um, but somehow, I ended up calling New Zealand home. I'm now here in Auckland. Um, but thanks to uh, the internet, it's just amazing i can keep in contact with so many friends from back in the day well it's one of the reasons i set the group up um i was chatting to someone else who i knew uh from the uh, from the early 80s um and we we i said is there a group for, for for us lot for the people who did this and he went not that i know of so i set this up and uh, as i said before we're over 600 members now from all over the world people like yourself we've got people in america um spain everywhere and it's lovely that people are people like yourself are managing to keep in contact and uh, and still talk about pirate radio because it seems to be the thing we all love very much. Talking about your career, what is your actual career? What do you do now? And what what did you? What was it that dragged you away from radio? Well, that's a long story. It it all came about when I visited Tel Aviv. Basically, I wanted to, I sat on the beach, listened, tuned into uh, the Voice of Peace. And eventually caught up with Don Stevens. But while I was in Tel Aviv, I met other English guys working there. And I, and I thought, well, what, what, what on earth are you doing in, in Tel Aviv? They were all cooking. So um, that was what I had been doing. I had at the time been working cooking wimpies at the hamburger bar in Hendon. And I thought, well, maybe cooking is a career. So I went back to London, knocked on the door of Claridge's Hotel and uh, started work there, did my, did my stint, my, my apprenticeship in the kitchens, behind the stoves. And um, after a few years, they said, well, Philip, it's a job for you. So I went to, in, in Hilton in Belgium. And then while I was in Belgium, I kind of carried on. And, uh, and that career put me in good stead for about 30 years. Um, my last cooking role was area executive chef for Indonesia for an Australian hotel chain. And we had hotels in Jakarta, Semarang, Bali, uh, Bandung. So consequently, Indonesia has become my second home. On the way, I also cooked at the Hilton in, in uh, Bangkok. And I spent a year opening hotels in Malaysia. 
Um, but now I'm doing something quite different. I'm now a contracts analyst for a facility maintenance company. So I'm still I'm still able to uh, put food on the table because I've got a young family here in New Zealand. My wife is from Indonesia. She's Chinese Indonesian. Um, so I'm, I'm I, I am trying to act my age, but I've got a young family here. So life, life, life's been very lucky to me. Um, I might not have much money, um, no, no fortune, no fame, but um, I greatly value all the friendships I've made over the years through Pirate Radio, and they proved to be very enduring. It's lovely that you still are in contact with the people from the Pirate Radio. Do you still have any contact with Steve Wright at all? No, I have, I have attempted to uh, keep in contact, but no, he's moved on, I think. I don't think he wants to remember the old days, sadly. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm sure one day I'll hear from him because we spent many late nights recording jingles in his bedroom um, in, up there in Rayleigh with mum and dad downstairs. And he was, I think, that we first he was a listener to Radio Concord and Pirate Radio. And, and he used to uh, record jingles and he wanted to be a radio DJ and... Uh, and of course, you know, he, he made the right contacts and, and everything worked out well for him in the end. But um, I am going back to London in the middle of next year. I might try and make contact and just give him a call and uh, see if I can get together and have a beer. I don't know if you know, there was quite a lot of controversy because he uh, no longer does his program on Radio 2 now. Um, in the afternoon, he's on an, at the weekends a bit, and I think he'll be probably be moving to one of the commercial networks. But there was a, a lot of talk about uh, did he jump or was he pushed? Um, you know, because we've been doing that afternoon show for an awful long time. So we'll wait and see, see if you can find out for us. <laughs> um, so, are you still involved in radio at all? Have you got an interest in it at all, or is it something that just you don't have time in your life for these days? I know I'm just a listener. Um, Radio Mi Amigo is, is my weekend uh, first uh, port of call. And, of course, um, internet radio. I, it, I was also a very avid DXer, which is another another sort of hobby of mine, which I haven't failed to mention. I used to be tuning around shortwave and send you up with QSL cards. And one of my close friends I first met through that uh, was... Uh, Friend who's now living in Thailand, hey, Robert. Robert, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so I've still got friends from my DXing days. And uh, sadly, I've mislaid all of my QSL cards and all of my tapes and memories. They've all kind of got lost in all the various movies around the world and and various wives I've had have had clear outs and thought, what's all this garbage? <laughs> we did an interview with. Uh Bert Bridges, who, who, who's done a lot of shortwave stuff. He said, you know, it was all not well and good getting the request for QSLs. But there's two things about a QSL car. One is they're not really listeners. They're people who are just collecting radio stations like they collect railway, car- uh, railway trains. And secondly, it's, it's a signed confession by the station that they were on air at that time doing that thing. So um, it, he said it was a bit strange. He used to instruct his presenters on shortwave stations to do the address at the end of the hour so that anybody who's t- tuning in just to get a QSL card had to listen to the right to the end of the hour in order to... Uh, in order to get the QSL address, um, because these guys have put, spent all this time putting these programs together, and people were just tuning in, naming two tracks and the name of the presenter, and then off to another station. So, uh, but I, I can understand. I mean, QSLing is something 
I know is very popular. DXing is something that's very, very popular. Even now, if you look on the internet, there's plenty of people out there doing that. Um, and I can I can understand the attraction. It's not something I ever did, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, so now you're in New Zealand. Are there any local stations that you just, I mean, Harakai, I assume is uh, one of the stations out there. Have you, do you listen to them at all? The old pirate station? Yeah, Radio Haraki is now only exists in name. It's 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 a a, a rock theme station as part of a major radio network where they have like a easy listening top forty, and then the rock station is Haraki. But the radio in New Zealand is still very uh, very um, doesn't really have any interest to me. Um, or going probably equivalent of the Radio One going for the middle of the road market. So you know, the radio industry here is, is not in a very good state. So I really don't listen to radio here. I'm more uh, on, online, listening to online stations. Yeah, we've got a similar situation here. I, I, I don't think you're missing much uh, in the UK either. And with the online listening, of course, like you say, you listen to, to Mi Amigo and there are plenty of other stations out there that you can listen to. A lot of nostalgia as well offshore nostalgia and stuff and um as you know caroline are broadcasting now on media wave in the uk uh properly <laughs> legally uh, but they've also got a big online offering as well with a number of different um types of stations to listen to so th- there is plenty of stuff out there and that's the joy of the internet um one of the, one of the things i quite like to doing and i sound very nerdy and a little bit weird here but i do like to listen to sometimes american fm rock style stations um, just because I just like the presentation style, really. It's very much something that I've always been interested in. Uh, I can't remember who it was. It might be Bear from uh, from Alice's Restaurant. I had a tape once that he went to Detroit and tuned through the FM band. This is way back in the late 70s when, you know, we had a, like four stations in London or something. And he tuned through the FM band and there's just all these stations playing loads of different music and it's station after station after station after station. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever heard. And one of the stations was WABX Rocks Detroit. Uh, And they don't exist anymore. In fact, they're down in another city altogether now, that call sign. But that's the sort of thing I used to be really into. Um, And whenever I go to a place, I always like to try and listen to a bit of the radio. Um, but I live in Shropshire now where there isn't a lot going on, to be brutally honest, <laughs> on the radio dial. But that's that's one of the things. I, I assume Auckland is like any big city. There's lots of lots of stations that are all playing the same records, I would imagine. That's right, yeah. The in- radio industry here it just goes with the lowest common denominator. But the, uh, the other, yeah, I, I didn't mention that uh, I was also an avid listener, DXer, to American radio, so much so that I made a trip once to New York and uh, stayed in the hotel in, in Times Square and tuned to 77 WABC, and that really got me. Um, that was that – was, um, so I was back in the day. You could, you could call me a radio anorak. Um, I was the real, the real anorak. I used to go out on the pirate ship on, on the free radio campaign boats to uh, pop around and, and bob around the North Sea. I went on one trip where we went to visit Veronica – R and I, Caroline, um, and of course we uh, we uh, changed brought that word into the English Oxford Dictionary, anorak. Whereas back in the day, anorak was just simply an anorak, and now it's become uh, synonymous with uh, with um, people with uh, overly interested in 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 the subject, 
and anorak's become a, a word of its own in the dictionary. So I was one of the original anoraks, wearing my anorak, and, and, and we got uh, called that on name by the DJs on Caroline. There's another, another boatload of anoraks coming out. And so we did also transform the English language to give a new meaning to an old word. Absolutely. And, and whenever me and my friends back in the day used to start talking about radio, we'd all go, right, hoods up. <laughs> and then <laughs> do this little, little my way. We'll put our hoods up and start talking about radio <laughs> in true anorak style. I, 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 I'm very proud to be an anorak. I'm absolutely proud to be an anorak. I still tune around the Media Wave Band and, and FM and where I can and wherever I can. Just because I love it. You know, I've loved radio ever since I can remember. Uh, ever since listening to Tony Blackburn back in the day when I lived in Leeds, uh, when I was a small child. And I've always loved it. And it's always been the thing I've... Probably the, the one thread that's gone right through my life, to be honest. Philip, if you were me, what would you ask yourself? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm just very fortunate to have been part of growing up in London back in the day, the excitement, the thrill pirate radio it's really embedded in me and i've had careers and families and different lives but at the end of the day in the background it's still pirate radio and anorak anorak behavior that's still there in the background and i'm just so thrilled that so many guys are still out there still wearing anoraks and we're still all uh, one group i'm not i'm not the only person with this um with this obscure interest in, in, in tuning the radio and radio jingles and uh, pirate radio and just the whole thrill of listening to the music and being part of such a big family of friends. That is fantastic. Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for getting up earlier than your family in Auckland in New Zealand to talk to us. I will now read the book about Radio Concord and Arnold Levine's book, with a lot more interest and I will try and find you in there because you're definitely in there, I'm sure. It's been, as I said, a real pleasure. Thank you very much for, for making the effort to, to get in contact. See, if you get in contact with the podcast, I then contact you and say, do you want to be on it? And it's exactly what happened with, with Philip. He got in contact with me and uh, I said, do you want to be on it? He said, yeah, I've got a bit to talk about. Uh, so there we go. So thank you very much, Philip. It's been lovely, lovely talking to you. Thanks for your time, Mark. It's been, it's been a pleasure to be talking to you and and, uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. It'd be great if you would subscribe, review and follow us. And if you want to get in touch, please email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. We would love to hear your comments and suggestions regarding programmes. And it's the same address if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode. We'll be back in two weeks with another Pirate of the Airwaves. So until then, stay safe and keep your eyes open during those tape changes. Radio Nova, broadcasting on 1404 kilohertz of the medium wave band, 212 meters. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.